Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Now, Mike told us just a few minutes ago how to take inventory of oneself. As we're coming to the end of this year, as he was saying, we often come to this threshold, and whether it's our budget or all those things he said, we're, we're taking into consideration, we're taking inventory, we're thinking about something to aim for or to go for. And as we sit here on the eve of the new year, we're often looking introspectively. We're assessing, where do I stand? How am I doing? And sometimes when we take this inventory, it's painful. And we actually get depressed because we look at where we are and say, golly, I think I regressed this year rather than progressed. And some of us are probably thinking that about our hair. Others think that our, others think that our weight did the other direction and that that progressed. Um, bad way, you know. But there's all kinds of things that we look at, and maybe it's even spiritually. We just think, you know... I really have this ambition to read the five chapters with Sunday night Bible study every week. And oops, I did good in Genesis. (laughs) And, you know, there's just, it's this fresh start. And, okay, so weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning. And that joy is now. Because what I'm doing (laughs) is I am bringing us to the remedy. We have scrutinized, we've looked at ourselves introspectively, we have taken inventory and assessed, and now it's time to say, okay, I heard the doctor tell me the bad news, it's time for the good news. It's time for that solution to help me move on, to help me mature and to grow in my faith. So it's, it's as if, I guess, you're sitting in a doctor's office and you hear the bad news. You have cancer. Okay, it's hard to take, but at the same time, that's good news. Because had you not heard that, you wouldn't know you needed a remedy. And if you didn't know you needed a remedy, then the cancer would eat you from the inside out, so you died. So yes, bad news hurts, and it comes, and it's heavy, but with bad news comes this ray of hope. It promises a morning of joy, that there's this remedy to be sought for. And so that's what we're going to do here in this last segment is look for that remedy. What is that, that solution, that medicine, that prescription that we need from our doctor to get up in this new year and to move on in strength? Okay, let's read Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. We often know him as Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed him. And Matthew, Levi, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Well, as you would have it, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What is the remedy that we need in order to, after our assessment, to say, okay, pick myself up and let's move on, let's go, progress 2013 is for me. What do we need? What's the remedy? The doctors told us this is your cancer area, this is their problem, this is where you need to grow up in. The remedy is mysterious. I guess ultimately we want to know what makes a good Christian. Is it abstaining from sin? Does that make a good Christian? Is it keeping God's commandments? Maybe it's nearness and a good devotional prayer life with God. Or maybe it's giving up everything and abandoning your life on the mission field. Is it knowing all the minute details and having this great knowledge of the Bible? Is it leading others to Jesus? Is it helping your neighbor shovel his driveway or letting him borrow your snowblower? Is it all of the above? What if I told you it's none of the above? What if I told you that those things I just listed is what we generally think of as good Christians. We generally think that a good Christian is somebody who achieves great things for God. They're the ones who pull out their sword and advance and do it for God. But what if I told you that that person is actually the worst Christian? What if I told you that that is not what makes a good Christian? None of those things listed. What if I told you that instead, a good Christian is not somebody who achieves great things for God, but rather someone who receives great things from God? This only makes sense, of course, if you stop imagining a little God. This is the way the Bible wants us to think of God. It's in Psalm chapter 50, God says to Israel, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, they're mine. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field, it's mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. So with that in mind, what in the world can we bring to God as if we could do something for Him, achieve something on His behalf? What in the world, with all of His resources, and, and, and He can hold the universe like a peanut in His pocket, with all of that, what in the world could we possibly add to His greatness with? What can we do for Him to make Him look better? How can we esteem Him even greater than He already is? What, what do we, in our finite, puny, dust-created bodies that we're breathed into, what are we able to bring to Him? Nothing, right? According to that passage. So... This is the remedy that I want to propose that we need to go into 2013 with. 
We need the great word grace. We need grace in order to move forward in 2013, to progress, to climb, to become a great Christian. Now, I know grace is a word we hear all the time. We, we hear many different explanations, or maybe we don't even know what we've heard because it's just so, what grace, it's just that good thing, right? And just to make it simple tonight, I like to define grace as everything that God is for us in Jesus. Everything we cannot be, he is on our behalf. And when he does that, that is called grace. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So, where we've fallen short, his grace comes and brings us up. Example, uh, we have sinned, so he has forgiven our past sins, grace. We keep sinning, so his grace continues to propel us against present sins. Everything that I cannot be, he is on my behalf, that's grace. So, when I am struggling with lying... Grace brings to me truth and honesty, the ability to reverse what I am tempted to do or say. When I am greedy, when I'm wanting to covet, grace comes and brings contentment into my heart. When I am terrified and anxious and fearful, grace comes with peace and brings that calm to me. Grace is everything that I cannot be. It comes and fights on my behalf. And by definition, grace cannot be achieved. It cannot be sought for. It has to be received from God. As Romans 4.4 4 says, that the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So I can achieve things, but that's what I, that's what I can get. Grace is something that's beyond me. And unfortunately, I think too many of us live with what I call a theology of causality. A theology of causality is this. It's the belief that God merely reacts to everything I do. So that if I've been pretty good, my life will be blessed. I'm walking tight with God because I've just not done anything too bad lately. But if I do something that's wrong, then suddenly it's like, oh, I got a flat tire because of what I said. Or all these things are happening because of what I did. And we, we live in this trail of God's going to react to everything I do. That's a theology of causality. And that's the mentality of I'm going to achieve great things for God. And when I fail, 2012 all over again. So what I want to do is look at just brief passage we just read, take two pictures out of it, and thrust this forward for us to realize that what God really wants from us is not necessarily, and I will clarify this at the end, but not necessarily achieve great things for him as much as he wants us to receive great things from him. So the two pictures go like this. First, we're going to look at Jesus and the, um, the not parable, what's the word, proverb. The proverb of Jesus, he says that the last two verses. Then we're going to look at the grumbling of the Pharisees. So let's go through this quickly. So the proverb of Jesus, verse 31. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a doctor, those who are sick. 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus and the Pharisees, this is his answer to their grumbling. He's eating with sinners. He's eating tax collectors. Who is this man? And this little mini battle between those two is answered by Jesus with this proverb. I came for the sinner, the sick, not for the righteous, the well. I'm a doctor. That's what doctors are there for. This little conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus hinges upon this one question. Who works for who? Does God work for us or do we work for God? Is God the boss and I'm the employee? Or am I the boss and God is the employee? Who's in charge and who's working for who is the question that I see them squabbling over. Now, most of us would answer, well, duh, God's got everything. He's the boss. We're the workers. We were made in his image and we are here for him and blah, 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 blah. He's the boss. I'm the worker. But let me suggest to you that that mentality is actually the Pharisees' mentality. They're the ones who are looking at God and thinking, He's the boss. We have to work for Him. So let's achieve great things for Him. But Jesus is turning their mentality on its head. And He's telling them, No, 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 no. You guys, Pharisees, man, we are the employers. God is actually working for us. <laughs> You're like, come again? <laughs> is this belittling God? I don't think so, because if God was our boss and we were the workmen, what we would have to do is achieve a lot of things to get the job done for our boss because he said so. <laughs> When it's turned the other way around and I'm the boss and he's working for me, suddenly I'm not doing the achieving, he's doing the achieving. And I'm receiving and reaping the benefits from his work. So I'm in charge. Well, let's not think that we're belittling God here because Jesus picks up the perfect analogy for this message. And that's where he says, I'm like a doctor who has come for the sick. Now, when you're sick and you go to the doctor, you're not telling him, listen, bud, I can do this. I want to achieve my wellness. So you just kind of stand by the side and cheer me on. You're coming to the doctor to receive something. You're saying, I can't do whatever's wrong with me. I can't achieve my wellness. I need you to achieve that for me. I need to receive something from you. Whether it's medicine, prescription, a remedy, some therapy, give it to me. You are putting that doctor to work on your behalf. And in so doing, you have not belittled the doctor in any way. Just because the doctor's working for you, it doesn't make the doctor less than you. Quite the opposite. When you come to somebody with need and say, I can only receive it from you, and you put them to work, you are actually exalting their ability and their resources as the only hope you have. And you're coming to them because they're worthy of receiving from. And so that is what Jesus is drawing to our attention is that we're the sicklings, he's the doctor. We're the ones putting him to work on our behalf. We can't achieve it, 
We can only receive it. So we're just looking to receive great things from him. So when the sickling cannot heal himself, God is glorified. God is glorified not when we achieve something for him, but when we receive something from him. Because all the fullness of the earth is his. And he's bestowing it upon us. And as we receive it, we're making him look big. But as we sit here and say, I'm going to achieve instead. I'm going to do great things for him. It's making God look like this little tiny, tiny, uh, tiny thing who's saying, help me, help me. Okay, church, let's muster up the forces. We have to help our puny God because he's in trouble. But man, when we're receivers and we're living by receiving grace, he is looking big. And we're trying to elevate his greatness because of our neediness. So that's picture number one. Picture number two. The ungracious grumbling of the Pharisees. It says in verse 30 that the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. Here's Jesus eating with tax collectors who were, not to get into it, but they were hated. And they were rebels. They were working for Rome, the hated empire. And it's kind of like, well, never mind. You're not all baseball fans. But when your favorite player goes and signs with the Yankees because he gets more money with them, it's like, oh, I hate that empire. Um, that was the tax collectors. And they're sinners. Whoever the sinners are, they're the outcasts of Judaism. People, Pharisees don't hang out with them. They're the problem of Israel. So the Pharisees are doing their own thing. And they grumble, it says. Now, what's interesting is that this word grumble is the word that is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which the Jews are reading at the time. And it's consistently used in the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. That they complained and grumbled against God. Now, that was often depicted, that grumbling was depicted as rebellion against God. It's like God's doing this, like, and God says, you're rebelling against me. And sometimes stuff would happen. Well, what Luke is cunningly doing, and he does this in Luke and Acts all the time. He's very sly and crafty in the way he portrays the opposition to Christianity. He, he subtly is throwing the Pharisees in the wilderness with the grumbling Israelites. The entire generation that rebelled against God and wandered into their own death circle, Luke is subtly pitting these Pharisees with them. He's saying, in opposing Jesus and his grace towards sinners and his doctor to the sickling mentality, you guys are standing against his purposes, and you're not progressing, you're regressing. The Pharisees are relapsing. The remedy is there, and they are not taking it. Their condition's getting worse and worse and worse because of their mentality of, let us achieve great things for God. They were refusing to receive. Briefly, you guys know the um, parable in Luke 18, verse 9. It's the one of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The two go into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee stands off by himself and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy, tax collector, and that instead I tithe and I fast. And man, I'm achieving these great things for you. Thank you. And then the tax collector sits there beating his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need to receive great things from you. And Jesus says that the one who just prayed, I need to receive, walked out justified, not the one who said, I can achieve. That's their mentality. The Pharisees see God as the boss and we're the respondents. And they put achieving in front of receiving, which is why when they see sinners who achieve nothing, they say, they can't receive anything. They can't take anything from you because they didn't achieve anything. But Jesus comes on the scene and flips it. He says, no, receiving, then achieving. 
It's because they can't achieve anything that they have to receive something. You can't tell a sick lame man to walk. You have to give him something to help him walk. That's what he came to do. So Jesus is blowing our minds by saying, I am here to work for you. Put me to work. It's as if he's holding the sign we see on the corner of the 18 or the 2, 10, and Waterman. And he's saying, I will work if you let me. But don't, to finish this, don't get me wrong. I am not downplaying achieving great things for God at all. We just need to have the right order. It's receive, then achieve. It's not achieve, then I'll receive. When we achieve, it must be done in the power that we receive. Grace is our remedy. But like the Pharisees, when you do achieving, then receiving, that's a relapse from your remedy of grace. But it is the same way the other way around. If we do receiving, but don't do achieving, that also is a relapse. The remedy has to do something or the remedy is from a quack. If we're receiving grace, it must empower us to bestow grace. Therefore, if we are indeed the sicklings and we're coming to the proper doctor and getting our remedy of grace from God, we have to see ourselves sitting with tax collectors and sinners, not grumbling like the Pharisees. With the very power we're receiving, we must also let that become our wings and soar us to higher levels so that we receive great things from God in order to achieve great things for God. Let us progress as healthy Christians, receiving our remedy and employing God's grace to work in us and then through us this new year. Amen, Amen, church? Have a happy new year.